Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, Reactionary Feminism, Sex and the Market. Please welcome Delano Squires, Research Fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Richard and Helen DeVos Center. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Again, my name is Delano Squires. I'm a Research Fellow here in the DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family. Um, I'm extremely excited to serve as moderator for today's panel on reactionary feminism, sex in the market. So we're going to talk about a lot of things, about what it means to be a woman today as the meaning of sex and market preferences rapidly shift with each technological development. Um, let, let me just read a really quick description to sort of set up um, our discussion today. So women's liberation was less the result of human moral progress than an effect of the material consequences of the Industrial Revolution. We've now left the industrial era for the age of AI, biotech, and all pervasive computing. As a result, technology is liberating us from natural limits and embodied differences. Although this shift benefits a small class of successful professional women, it also makes it easier to commodify women's bodies, human intimacy, and free female reproductive abilities. Only an elite minority of women seem to benefit from this so-called progress. So, again, one of the questions that, that we will address today is, um, as I said, what it means to be a woman today and how advances in technology have affected um, sex and sort of the, the market characterization of the relationships between, between men and women. So... Without further ado, because you all didn't come to see me, um, I'm going to introduce our, our panelists, and I'll ask them to join me on stage. I'll just read a brief bio. First is Mary Har Harrington, um, a self-described reactionary feminist. Uh, Mary Harrington is the author of the new book, Feminism Against Progress, and a contributing editor at Unheard. Her work has appeared in the Times of London, The Spectator, The New Statesman, The Daily Mail, The American Mind, and First Things. Mary, would you join us? Next is Erica Bakiaki. Uh, Erica is a fellow with EPPC and a legal scholar specializing in equal protection jurisprudence, feminist legal theory, Catholic social teaching, and sexual ethics. She is also a senior fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts where she founded and directs the Wollstonecraft Project. Um, her newest book, The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision, was published by Notre Dame University Press in 2021. Erica, welcome to the stage. And last but certainly not least is Arthur Millick. Uh, Arthur is the executive director of the Center for the American Way of Life at the Claremont Institute in Washington, D.C., Arthur's writing has appeared in Claremont Review of Books, National Affairs, City Journal, Real Clear Politics, American Greatness, and The Daily Signal. Arthur holds a master's from the University of Chicago and a BA from Emory, and is currently work, working towards his PhD in philosophy at Catholic University. Arthur, would you join us? All right, so I'm gonna take my seat and we're gonna get our conversation started. Mary, I feel so far from you. Uh, I know. I think I was supposed to sit there rather than here, but we can all we we, we can all shuffle up one if you like, or we can just crack on. I don't mind. <laughs> Let's crack on. Let's go on. <laughs> Let's crack on. All right. Um. So, so Mary, can you? I, I'd love one to read a definition of feminism that I've heard you give before. Um, it's a definition I have haven't heard anyone else give before. You say that feminism is a doctrine which argues that we can and should use technology to the fullest extent possible to flatten the differences between the sexes, even at the expense of unborn life. 
Um, I found that to be a fascinating definition. Can you speak a little bit about that definition of feminism and the tension it creates between the feminism of freedom and the feminism of care, which you describe in your book? Sure. The first thing I would say is, just for the, to be clear, that definition which you just read um, is what I would characterize as cyborg feminism, or really the ascendant feminism, or what's been traveling under the sign of feminism for the best part of 50 years now. And it was actually Erica's work in The Rights of Woman, Reclaiming Lost Legacy, which, which made me realize that when we talk about feminism, particularly when conservatives talk about feminism, they're missing half of the story. And Erica's done phenomenal scholarly work on, on, on recovering what, uh, what she rightly calls a lost legacy of kind of women's advocacy for women prior to the sexual revolution, which is no longer treated as feminism. No, it's no longer read as feminism. It's been effectively memory hold and, and treated as, it, it, it gets described as women's history, but it's not, it's not feminism. Mm. And that, that includes, for example, the temperance movement, and it includes particularly the great body of work in the 19th century, which focused on advocacy for women as embodied female individuals, equal in dignity to, to men, but different. You know, we are, we are not the same. And then, and then the, that, that form of women's advocacy since the sexual revolution has largely disappeared. And the, the, first, the first step, the first third of the book, uh, the feminism against progress, I've spent seeking to, to recover that invisible history, that, that memory hold, um, and to ask the question, why has it been memory hold and how was it memory hold? And the conclusion I came to is that the winners write the history books. And that what happened was that one side of, in fact, a, a, a two-sided movement of women's advocacy had definitively won, cleared the field, and had rewritten the history books in order to in order to render the other the other side of the, the other side invisible. Um, so, so this is and, and trying trying to look back through through the looking glass is it's quite difficult to do, but the the, the story really begins at the beginning of the industrial era, which. I have argued radically, I mean, the history, history attests, radically transformed in family life, radically transformed everything about people's lives, um, and, and, and did so and with, with particular impact on women, because prior to the industrial era, most, the, the, the principal economic unit was not individuals as it is today, it was the household. And within what, what historians call a productive household, which were largely agrarian or perhaps artisanal, you know, most, most households were of that nature. Men and women both worked, and they may have done different tasks, but it's, it, it's not simply not meaningful to say that one, one, of one, of one partner was economically productive and the other one was not, because everybody was. You know, the processing raw materials into textiles for, to clothe the family hmm. is, no less, is no less work in any meaningful sense than, than plowing the fields in order to grow crops for the family. You're, it's all just the work within a productive household. And then industrialization comes along, and a great many of, the, of the, those forms of work, which, which, which were previously done by women, were, were drained away from the home and were, were now done in factories, which left women with, with a whole set of new dilemmas which they previously not had to deal with. For example, balancing home and family, balancing work and family had not, just wasn't a thing when work and family were all just the work. It was all just the same thing. But you, when you're in a situation, if you want to, if, let's, say you, you're, let's say you need to earn a wage, um, and suddenly that's something which happens outside the home. Um, you, if you're a mother, you have the question of what you're going to do, what, what happens to your baby? You know, if you were hand weaving at home, you could do that with toddlers underfoot. If you're, you can't very well take your toddler to a large factory full of heavy and dangerous machinery. Well, yeah. certainly it's not advisable. Mm. Um, and so, so, so women, women, and, and in the book I've set out two characteristic ways that women responded to this new dilemma. One was to make a case for the values and virtues of the, of the now private domestic sphere from which economic activity has been drained. Um, and this, this is what I've characterized as the feminism of care. And Erica writes wonderfully about this in The Rights of Women. Um, the, 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 the great body of women's writing and women's advocacy, which focuses on the recognition of the valorization and the recognition of the importance of care, of the importance of motherhood, of the value of family life, under these industrial conditions in which that's reframed from being just where, where life happens to being a space of respite from, from the, the, the market society, which is now emerging. 
and, the, and, and in which the moral education of children, the care of children, the care of dependents, and you know, they, the, 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 the business of relationship remains of equal value. And this was and in a situation where women have, have effectively lost a great deal of economic agency. This, this matters. You know, at the end, if you're you know, an agrarian housewife in the Middle Ages, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't need to be very defensive about the fact that she's pulling her weight within the home. But in a situation where you, you, you've lost economic agency and, and, and you haven't really gained any political leverage in order to, to, chorus, to compensate for that in any sense, you, so suddenly these bourgeois housewives need to make a case for why what they're doing still matters. Because, because obviously, they, in their view, rightly, it, it did still matter. And so there's this huge body of writing, which, is, which has been, um, I think, dismissively titled by, by liberal feminist historiographers, The Cult of Domesticity. There's a huge body of women's writing, largely from the 19th century, which, which seeks to, 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 give, to give shape to that and to give value to that and to make the case for that. And, and I, I read this straightforwardly as a kind of feminism, even if the liberal feminist historiography frames it as patriarchal propaganda. But to me, to me, it's straightforwardly as it's ad women's advocacy for, for the work that women still rightly assess to be important. So this is the feminism of care. But against that, there's also the, those women who said, well, this still isn't enough because we've lost economic agency and we don't really have any political agency. And the solution to this isn't, you know, you've handed us lemons, so let's make lemonade. That's, that's not good enough. And actually, we need to enter the market on the same terms as men, because otherwise, we're never going to be equal. And so, and so this, this side of the ledger, you, it, I, I characterize as the feminism of freedom, which says that men and women, are, men and women should be equal, and we're equal in rights and dignity and so on. And we should have equal access to public life. And we should, be, we should have all the opportunities both sexes should have access to public life and all of the opportunities and, and the, the affordances of public life and, 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 and really made the case for women entering the market on the same terms as men as being the, the proper solution to the, the, the new dilemmas delivered by the industrial era. And, and, and it's my contention that, that that back and forth, which really characterizes the, the women's movement from, from the late 18th century and the writings of Mary Wollstonecraft up to the second wave, that, 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 was, that was definitively won by the feminism of freedom mm. with the legalization of abortion. This is a point that I owe to you, Erica. And I think is a, and, and, and since then, we've been living, living under a, 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 what, what characterizes itself as feminism, but was, is really only one side of feminism, the feminism of freedom. And this is, this is really the feminism which the right tends to critique. Um, and it's, Without, without really acknowledging the, the, the whole missing story of the, the, the other side of the coin, the feminism of care. And, and this, is, this is a form of feminism which, which, which is characterized by the definition that you read out to open our conversation, where we, we seek to flatten all the differences of embodied, embodied human life through, through any and all technologies to the fullest extent possible in the name of individual freedom, individual desire, understood as something which, which should not be constrained by any limits of our physical bodies. Hmm. So, um, Eric, I'm, I'm going to turn to you, because you, you wrote something in recent commentary um, that talks about feminism and industrialization and the cleavage of work and home. So I want to read a, a short quote and ask you to, to respond to it. Although we can be most grateful for the technological advances the industrial era wrought, the concomitant cleavage that era caused between work and home, particularly care of children and productive labor, is the most enduring cost of the period, one that has perhaps become most imposing in our time. Um, can, can you talk about that cleavage and um, whether there's anything to sort of shrink that gap between work and home, particularly in a, in a technologically advanced era? Mm -hmm. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. And um, I have to say that that had Mary Harrington been the only one who read my book, it would have been an enormous success. <laughs> um, so it was funny in, in reading a review she did was that she was able to encapsulate in one sentence what I belabored, uh, belaboredly did in you know, 400 pages. And so I just want to say that because I think it's such a beautiful statement of um, what I think she then does in such a brilliant way in her book is she said, um, and I think actually you said this at NatCon too, um, that, that uh, feminism did not begin but end with the sexual revolution. Mm. Um, I think that was sort of my claim, again, that took a long time with lots of footnotes. <laughs> so, <laughs> Very good um, footnotes. So, <laughs> I encourage you all to buy the book. <laughs> so I, I, I so appreciate Mary's work. I don't think um, that I know, and I've read a lot of feminist um, theory, feminist history, I don't think there's a more brilliant book um, on sort of the history and sort of theory um, and sort of practice 
of feminism, and I would really commend it to everyone. Um, I hope it to be a classic. It seems to have um, taken Britain by storm. I think it's probably going to take um, the United States by storm as well. Um, so, so going back to, you know, I, I think Mary, in some sense, answered a lot of um, this idea of what happened in industrialization in terms of this cleavage that happens um, when when work does leave the home. I think, um, you know, as a as a legal theorist, one of the one of the things I would just underscore is the way in which. There's this great interdependency and collaboration and reciprocity in that agrarian household that, you know, women were legally subordinate to men at that point um, in terms of, of the law of coverture from the common law. But there's no complaint at that point because, um, because as she mentioned, there's just such an interdependency. And so it only is when, you know, men, because of industrialization, leave the home and work for wages that then women become economically dependent in a, when they, in a way they weren't on those wages and puts them in a, in a difficult position. Now with a virtuous man, it probably would be absolutely fine and was for many women. But when you know, the other temptations um, that, that industrialization wrought because of the really you know, horrific workplace um, and what the temperance movement was really responding to as bars and brothels and those kinds of things. So mm -hmm. a man who was not um, virtuous um, was not holding up to his responsibilities um, in the family. And this is really what those early women's rights advocates were, were you know, arguing um, against and really sort of trying to make claim in terms of all sorts of different um, legal moves, joint property ownership, uh, protective legislation in the workplace and all that. So what I, um, what I think is really a key point, and in, in I love how Mary talks about sort of that the liberal, the, the liberal feminist vision really won, and that's why we don't hear much about the rest, is that there's sort of this cognitive dissonance where a lot of liberal feminists or progressive feminists today really bemoan the lack of um, the workplace taking seriously the work of care in the home because, well, they, you know, some of them have children, indeed, uh, you know, vast majority of women um, uh, and uh, have children, except for, of course, our, our recent, um, uh, you know, younger women claiming that they don't want them anymore. But, hmm. um, and, and we sort of wonder, like, where did that come from? And it seems to me quite obvious that when you elevate um, the capacity for women to, um, as, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg would put it in her scholarship, to become equal citizens on the same footing with men through the right to abortion, and you claim that that right is necessary for women's equality and women's citizenship, that it's pretty easy for all the market institutions and including public institutions to sort of say, great, <laughs> we'll join right along with you. I mean, and the way I think of it is it's, it's liberal feminism really capitulating to the to market forces and sort of saying, like, we don't need to really make space for or, or accommodate women as embodied, you know, beings who are the ones who are disproportionately um, impacted by reproduction, human reproduction. And so we'll just, you know, sort of allow the marketplace and the workplace to stay just as it always was, which is formed along sort of the unencumbered um, male worker, um, sort of the ideal male worker. And so that's why we <laughs> have rampant pregnancy discrimination. You know, that's why um, we don't see as, as, as many sort of uh, accommodations for not just women's work, but really the work of the home, the work of the family. Um, that you know, you know, America's work is is um, is often you know just very profit oriented um, in terms of business oriented, and so there's a real way in which those two things sort of hatcheted together to give us what we have, which is um, a real a real the way in which and and you see this in modern feminism. I mean, up until President Biden, I think what you know this week talks about you know poor women can't get back into the workplace, and this is really hurting G, you know GDP and the way in which. All things are sort of thought about as all of us, men and women, are breadwinners first and caregivers second. And that's just an absurd, and, and, and just also, I mean, to start with Betty Friedan, really, and thinking about the home as parasitic on the workplace or the, or the female, you know, caregiver is parasitic on the male worker. It's like, no, 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 she got that entirely wrong, though there's something she got right. Um, clearly, the workplace, the market, um, pretty much everything we do from economics to politics to um, civil organization is all parasitic on the work of the home. And so um, that's where I think this, you know, if we were to, you know, think about technology not as something which could flatten difference, but as something that, you know, for the common good could bring more work back into the home. Um, I think Mary's chapter on marriage is really beautiful in terms of her just sort of you know, showing the examples of different people, um, different couples where they've, you know, thought about, they've sort of exited out of, or not maybe not entirely, but of sort of the rat race 
and they see themselves working together for the, the care and the formation of their children and also to kind of put food on their plate, but also do interesting work. And that that collaboration is very much reminiscent of, um, of, of that sort of, you know, pre-modern or, you know, agrarian workplace, pre-industrial. Um, so, you know, the contention I think we both have is like industrialization sort of splits home and work, cleaves home from work. Um, and that is there a way in which technology could be used for our good, for the good of the family, um, to maybe, you know, I think that I'm more hopeful about this than maybe Mary is, <laughs> um, but, but is there a way in which we could think about the, the work of the family as first and foremost, and therefore all other goods um, being aligned with, with that important formative work of the family, which I think everyone has sort of forgotten that, you know, in order to have good citizens and good workers and um, and loving spouses and wonderful friends, you have to have that formative work of the family. It has to be honored um, first and foremost and supported economically if necessary. Mm. So, so what, I, what I hear you describe um, in terms of an ideal is for society to see the home as a central hub of productive work, mm. um, social, educational, economic, even spiritual. Um, and that would obviously be a shift in a different direction because I don't think that's how we see it. Mm -hmm. I think we see the home as a place where people lay their heads. Um, I think we, we've lost the understanding that both men and women have obligations to the home. Um, and in many respects, the only people who can't leave the home are the children. <laughs> um, so, and and we're, we're going to talk about, you know, we're, we're going to talk, Mary, you had a phrase that I would like to, to steal, but I, but I won't, where you talked about um, trans rights and the women supporting it being the priestesses of cyborg theocracy. <laughs> but we're, but we're going to come back to that because I, I want to get Arthur in the conversation. And particularly, Arthur, I'd like for you to speak to where men find themselves sort of situated in this conversation about feminism. Not that we always have to make it about us, but, <laughs> but, and, but specifically as it relates to, to men, the home, and whether um, domestication in some respects leads to emasculation. Can you, can you speak to that? Yes, of course. Uh, well, I you know, associate myself with some of the comments already here made very nicely on stage. But one thing that's missing is that there has been, I'm not the first person to observe this, there has been a you know, pretty conscious uh, attempt to make out of the old man into a new man. Hmm. And it's preceded based on a handful of strategies that have, we should admit it, more or less succeeded. The first part of it was to get rid of male spaces. So if there are more than a handful of men together <laughs> talking about politics, well, that's a conspiracy. And so you have to break it up. Uh, there have to be women almost always in all uh, male spaces, save for you know the tiny handful of things remaining, um, like fraternal orders, for example. Uh, but workplaces, certainly. Um, and you, you notice, of course, that it's always uh, the, the force of the law, the, the, the force of the morality is that women ought to be in male spaces rather than women desiring uh, only to have their own competitive spaces. So for example, uh, nobody is advocating for all female physics labs. Uh, nobody is advocating for, you know, all-female, uh, you know, law offices. Although maybe that would be something that is competitive, and both uh, sexes would preserve something of their own, which I think is lost uh, in uh, the constant interactions. And you see this uh, by the behavior that men and women have when they're always mixed. You see this on campuses. Uh, you see this in laboratories, et cetera. So this is just uh, something that we should consider and think through. That was the first part. Uh, then there are other parts, of course, uh, like the destruction, the kind of focused destruction of male self-respect. Hmm. Um, you know, this is partly what toxic masculinity is. I mean, that's the, the latest iteration of it. There have been things before it. There will be things after it. But the, the underlying goal is to make it such that young men especially look at themselves and their value in terms of uh, female judgments of them. Uh, that's one of the core things. And of course, there are other things that are pursued, the therapies, uh, the psychopharmacological therapies. Uh, that's all uh, meant to produce uh, uh, the effect that, that somehow maleness is lost, is dropped 
from our natures so that that new male who's gone through this steady training uh, can be more suited for a female-friendly world. And I think that this just comes out of feminism naturally. Um, and the, the, the end goal, not that I think it's going to be accomplished, but the end goal would require that, um, that all of the world is transformed this way. Because uh, a feminist world cannot be safe even if you implement this kind of going away of maleness in one country, it can't really be safe uh, forever, so long as there are masculine countries that have you know, armed forces that are ambitious, aggressive, all of these things. So the, 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 the doctrine itself requires that all of the world become this way, and I just think that that's uh, not possible. Um, and to return more concretely to your question about domestication, what that means is, I, I think, um, well, Eric and I briefly discussed this, I think that there's obviously some role for this. Uh, on the other hand, what is being asked for, very broadly, nobody quite says it this way, but it's whispered from various sides, uh, is that uh, man, men should be uh, subordinated to private pleasures only that their awareness of themselves has to be only through seeking out of more private, calm pleasures at the cost of, you know, real ambitions, uh, politics, especially politics, you know, ruling yourself, ruling your country. Um, and I, I just think that that, uh, in the end, is a thing that feminism demands. Uh, but then, at the same time, then at the same time, it constantly relies on the specific kind of maleness that it wants to undermine, you know, in establishing the order. Police forces, for example, uh, in the military. Uh, so it constantly has this impossible wish for full domestication and yet the reliance of maleness in other spheres to serve that domestication. Hmm. So, so let, let's, I, I want to push a little bit further in terms of the flattening of gender roles um, and feminism, transgender, so to speak, ideology. Um, as, as I said, Mary, you say that the, the highest rates of support for trans rights are among the most educated women, people call, you call the priestesses of cyborg theocracy. Um, and you say that they do this out of a sense of, of self-interest. I, I wonder, though, whether that self-interest is tied more to um, a desire not to, for lack of a better term, get the J.K. Rowling treatment, right? So they, they see it as we, we were once the, the victims of, of oppression and patriarchy, and we do not want to inflict uh, that type of oppressive force on the newest victim class. Can, can you speak to that in terms of what that self-interest actually looks like? Is it a legitimate we don't think that there are any sex differences, or is it we who were oppressed are now in the position of being framed as the oppressors, and we don't like that, the tension that that brings about? I guess I would say people are complicated, and we don't always understand our own motivations. Um, it's, it's not at all uncommon to find yourself accidentally on purpose doing something which you didn't even realize you, you were doing until, oh, whoops, there, uh, I seem to have done this thing. Um, I, I, it is not my position that women who advocate passionately for, for gender, for, for transgender ideology are doing so explicitly because they believe this will help them in the workplace. Mm. Um, it's, I think it's very much more plausible that in, in almost all cases they're doing it because they sincerely believe it's going to make the world a better place and that the world will be made a better, better place by rendering all of us, all, all of our opportunities to, to be who we are in the world to completely independent of our embodied physiology. And I, I mean, that's, that's such a common position. You know, that I, I just shouldn't be constrained by any accidental features of my, of my born physiology. That, and, it's, and this is somehow an imposition on, on my, my scope for self-actualization. And we can make the world a better place by, by trying to liberate everybody from any given constraints of this nature in order to, to give everybody the fullest possible opportunity to be who they are. And if that includes a male being who, who she is, 
um, <laughs> if, if, if that means if that means that I have to accept as a woman somebody who just says they're a woman, mm -hmm. um, even if they have a fully a fully developed set of dangly bits, then fine. I, I'm, I'm going to do that because logically it's coextensive with the rest of my position that we shouldn't be constrained by any accidental features of our physiology. I'm actually just responding a bit to what Arthur mm -hmm. has been saying. I. I accept and broadly agree with your analysis that there has been a wholesale um, push for some decades now to render what were previously all-male spaces co-ed. And I've, I've argued in one of the chapters in my book that the, there are significant undercounted costs of this, particularly lower down the socioeconomic scale, where it's not a matter of um, female barristers having access to the same networking opportunities as men, but the very much greater body of men who were never gatekeeping power and they were never gatekeeping resources. They just wanted to hang out with the boys. And those, and those spaces have been, have, have been subject to the same attrition as the private members clubs and the golf, and the golf societies and so on. And the cost of that to, to poorer men or has been has been considerable in mental health, in mental, you know, psychiatric distress, and in, in opportunities for socialisation, and also in the beneficial positive mentorship, which comes from association with other admired males in real life. And I've argued that it, it's it's into that vacuum, the vacuum that that creates, is the one is the one which then gets filled by figures such as Andrew Tate. Hmm. Um, so, but but what I would add, or what I would suggest in addition to that, is that yes. Um, the, the aspect of feminism which I call cyborg feminism or the feminism of freedom, this one which pushes for the flattening of all sex differences in the name of, of post-sex human emancipation, has been at the forefront of advocating for that, for the, for that incursion into, in, for, for rendering all spaces unisex. But I would suggest as well that an, a, an, an additional fact, rather than just saying, oh, it's all the fault of feminism, I would say there are other feminisms, would be, would be my first point. Um, and I've, I set out to characterize you know, some, some other aspects of that. You know, Erica is a, a great advocate of uh, less, less cyborg, less post-sex feminisms. There are, there are more of us as well. Um, other feminisms are available, would be my first point. And my second point would be that technology has also impacted men. And I mean, just to, to, take, a, to take a very large and very crude example, um, the atom bomb renders a previous form of militarism almost almost impossible now you know whereas wars would would have been fought on a much smaller scale and, a, and in a much more hand-to-hand -hand way the technologies of modern military warfare um, are are probably as great a contributor to to the loss of a kind of masculine warlike tradition um, as as any amount of cyborg feminism so this is just this is not to dissent this is not to disagree with your point but to complicate it I suppose to say that the, the same analysis of technological developments as, as having had an impact on women and on the on, on women's expectations and participation can also be applied to men and um, I mean we, we could look as well at the at the slow decline of industrialization the deindustrialization of the West hmm. and the and the the large scale impact that's had on working class male communities where it has had a, it has had an immense impact and the, in, in Britain as in the United States it's my understanding that there are great great swathes of the country where previously dignified well-paid working class jobs have disappeared and have not been replaced by anything of anything like an equivalent dignity or, or pay packet, such that men who would once have had a reasonable expectation of supporting a family and leading a, a, a wholesome and dignified life as, as a husband and a father and a provider are, just, are simply no longer there. And this is, and, and, and not, all, not, not all of this is down to feminism. Some of this is, some, some, some of this is very much larger social, cultural and economic changes. Hmm. So this is, this is really a yes and. So, and, and, and in, how, in terms of bring, just bringing this back for a moment to the priestesses of cyborg theocracy, um, just to, to round, off, round off this train of thought, this is a very roundabout way of getting back to the priestesses of cyborg, cyborg theocracy. Um, I've, I've suggested that these, those women who are still pushing for the, the radical flattening of, of, of sex differences, of all constraints of embodiment, are really the, the net beneficiaries of 
of deindustrialization and our transition into a digital workplace. Because in a sense, you can only really make, it, make the claim with a straight face that sex is just never important if, you never, if you're never confronted by all the ways in which it is important. Where, for example, if you were working in a factory, you would be daily confronted by the fact that being, being on average considerably physically stronger is a salient factor in whether or not you can do the job properly. I mean, there are, uh, there, there, are, there, there's, there are no feminist campaigns for 50-50 representation of women in collecting trash. Right. Right. And everybody knows why. It's, right. hard, it's hard work and there's no status to be gained from it. So nobody, nobody cares that that's all men. You know, so I've never seen a female bin man. And, you know, no, nobody, no, nobody says, oh, they should be bin persons. Right. You know, because, because everybody knows why. It's just not a very nice job to do, so no, so no one cares. Um, but, but there are plenty of other occupations where you just, you're just never going to be confronted by, by any of the ways that sex really does matter. And, and, and it's in, in, those, in those spheres of, of social life where women, even since, post, since deindustrialization, if you look at the statistics, um, even as employment and op opportunities for, for, the, for the kind of manual work that was historically once largely done by working class men, even as these have drained away from the developed world, um, other, you know, those, those opportunities which have, arise, have arisen to, to replace it, which might be, for example, in healthcare or in government bureaucracy, um, are, are very much more the kinds of jobs that could be done equally by both sexes. And, and, and these, these really are the, these are the material interests which are incentivizing and, 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 and continuing to power um, a, a sincere, from their own material point, from, from the point of view of their own material interest, a sincere push mm. for, for, for widespread acceptance that sex is just completely immaterial, mm. but which then feeds down, feeds down the, the food chain. Um, even into those areas where sex still does matter, whether that, for example, for, for example, in women's prisons. So, uh, um, Erica, I, I want to ask you a question that I think is equal parts sort of philosophical and, and practical. When when we start to talk about flattening the sexism again in, t in today's age, that often leads in, into a conversation about about gender and gender ideology. Um, one, I'd like you to address whether feminism as a as a as a political theory as an ideology um, has sort of at its core the ability to gatekeep in such a way that it can keep biological men out. So has, has the intrusion of, bio, of, of men in women's spaces, is that a feature of feminism? Like was it inevitable mm -hmm. or is that a bug? Um, and then two, I'd, I'd like you to speak to what effect um, men in women's spaces now do you think, what effect do you think that's had on women and their sense of self and their sense of, of dignity? And I ask that question, and particularly here in, in an American context, you, you look around, you know, some of the most uh, accomplished and influential women in professional sports, in business, in media, in, in, you know, entertainment, seem unwilling or unable to either define what a, what a woman is, <laughs> or to say anything in support of women that could be taken as um, a critique of transgenderism. So in effect, what, what I would like to say is that those women, those sort of uh, apostles of, of second wave feminism, have finally found a group of men they can submit to. Um, and, and, I, and I wonder I, I wonder what effect that has both on them as individuals and the women who, the young girls and women who come after them. Mm -hmm. Well, that was provocative. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it is, it is astonishing to me, I would say, that especially when, you know, we haven't, I haven't seen this as much in our country yet. I mean, this has certainly been the, the case in the UK where you see, you know, rallies of gender critical um, feminists in the UK. Um, and there are these, you know, clearly very aggressive men claiming they are women and want to enter entrance into sort of you know, women as a, as a uh, uh, I guess, category, um, whatever that is, um, but then also women's spaces. And sort of the cognitive dissonance to me of that is sort of astonishing in that for me, if I were in that situation, I would be quite afraid because of sort of um, the old man, the aggression coming at me, you know. Um, so I guess, I guess I would say a, a couple of Different, um, different things. I'm not sure about you know women, the feminists submitting to, to men and all that, but I would say that in terms of um, kind of getting to both of the points, um, especially that Arthur made, but also Mary, that I think um, one of the issues here, along with the complications that you introduced, um, is the way in which modernity has a particular view of success 
that is um, very much based in sort of market equality and sort of consumption, the, the kind of capacity to consume status, these kinds of things that as Mary rightly notes in her chapter, Let Men Be, um, which I think is excellent, um, you know, it's, it's hard to see if you, if you construct sort of liberal personhood on this basis um, and so many of these now sort of jobs, white collar or, or you know, whatever, um, can be done kind of by anyone without sort of attending to um, sex difference. It's hard to see, it's hard to make an argument as to why women ought not be invited into sort of that on, on the sort of equal ground of, of liberal personhood. And so I think the, really one of the key problems is that we've sort of missed what being a human being is and this, this sort of view of status and, and market success and all that is really kind of part of the error that, that is um, a complicated feature in, in sort of what Arthur was getting at. And so I guess I would say is that it's, you know, right away, again, as someone who, um, who you know, spends a lot of time reading constitutional law, and I mean, I, I guess it's nice to put sort of con some, something concrete here is, I don't know how many of you know that the sort of big case, um, the VMI case, that's, hmm. um, you know, United States versus Virginia, where the Virginia Military Institute was, you know, rendered co-ed by the Supreme Court with Ruth Bader Ginsburg writing that opinion. And I think what's fascinating, if you go, I actually um, spent time listening to oral argument um, because I wanted to go back and understand how it is that that um, that equality was kind of, or success was what was thought of. It's exactly how Mary has presented it, is that even, you know, Ted Olson, who's arguing um, on behalf of Virginia there is just talking about, you know, these, this, the reason why, you know, women wanted to get into VMI because of the status. I mean, it wasn't that VMI was just producing these citizen soldiers who would then go on and, or soldiers who would go, then go on be in the front lines of combat. VMI was producing, you know, the best engineers and the best, you know, Paul and the, and the contacts with politicians and, and the entry into all of these sort of this kind of market equality. And so when Ted Olson is making his case, he's talking about like, Education experts see that this, you know, um, this this sort of male-oriented competitive method that VMI has, you know, shows that you know graduates from here can sort of pr have proven their mettle. They can go out and succeed in the world. And what's fascinating to me is only Justice Scalia, of course, gets kind of the point of what the institution, or at least at some point, maybe not, you know, when VMI was litigated. Certainly, I think it probably had received it by then. But what the point of that institution was? was creating gentlemen, creating men who were a particular kind of man. And I would say, you know, if, you're, if you want to think about sort of the Christian sense of a new man, <laughs> um, one who was oriented toward the good of others. So, you know, you, you have, and so what Scalia brings up in his dissent is this gentleman's code. And he says, I don't know whether any of these men adhered to it. I don't know if they talked about it at all, but it was just a sense that men and women are different with regard to sexual desire, with regard to aggression, with regard to all of these embodied differences. And that's something that men require, just as women require, formation in order to be the kind of men that, as Mary talks about, can be good husbands, you know, good spouses, um, uh, good fathers, et cetera, um, and, you know, not be aggressors, you know, simply kind of simpliciter. And so even those who are in police forces and, and on front lines of combat and all these places are men who have disciplined themselves, so they are now protectors of others and not predators against the weak and the vulnerable. And that is a formative process that has to take place. And if you forget that, if you forget that not only are we different as sexes, men and women, who require kind of a distinctive formation, but that formation is required of human beings at all, and that's a work that has been characterized, I mean, that's what civilization has always understood to be these formative institutions, right, of marriage, of family, um, sex itself, like what sex is itself, um, which is another great point in uh, Mary's um, last chapter. I mean, all of these things form persons and then enable them to go on to be, you know, members of, of society. But if you don't form them, and if you forget that formation, you think it's just about market equality, you think it's just about sort of getting your own, mm. then you have a situation where, you know, one, the one word I would add to Mary's book is on the chapter, let men be, I would say, let men be formed. And yes, men, other men should be forming younger men, absolutely. But they have to be understanded to be formed, not like let men be, you know, like just kind of, mm -hmm. I, I have three sons and sorry, but <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't look good when you just let them, right? right? They have to constantly be formed, but so do women. And it's about 
sort of self-discipline, mastering appetites, doing all those things for the good of others. Mm. And that's something that I think had Ken Olson you know, talked about that or had VMI actually been doing that. And if they were doing it, if they were just preparing people to go out and be market equals, well, they, you know, the state didn't have a very good case. So, so um, in the last five minutes, you know, um, ask one final question and then we're going to go to, to Q&A. Um, so, Arthur, I'm, I'm curious, what do you believe, and, and this, is, this will be the same question for everyone in terms of what the future looks like. What, I'm going to ask you, Arthur, a specific question. What does the future of men look like in an era where I'm starting to see sort of someone brought up Andrew Tate, men like Andrew Tate, other self-professed conservatives say, say to younger men in terms of that forming, don't get married because the courts are stacked against you. If you want children, secure them through, you know, surrogacy or adoption. Um, what does the future of, of men look like in an era where differences between the sexes have been flattened. And then and Erica and Myriad, I'd also like you to comment um, on what that future of feminism looks like to you. Sure. Well, actually, I think this question is very much related to what you just said. So you say that uh, men should serve the good of others. Maybe so. But who's good in particular? So, um, you know, at VMI, they're training them to serve not just the good of others, but the good of their fellow citizens and their country. Mm. Um, and you look at, you know, I mean, this is, you know, such a silly thing to say, but, you know, you look at all of our, you know, superhero movies that are, you know, for male consumption, primarily. There, they're meant to serve, you know, the good of humanity. Mm. And I don't think that that's, you know, a particularly good message. Mm. Uh, you know, to sacrifice yourself for all of humanity. It's indeterminate. Humanity comes in different forms. Some of it is good, some of it is less good. A country too, but a country is a concrete thing that your heart can be attached to. And so, and it's only for that reason that, you know, men would literally sacrifice themselves, you know, on the battlefield. Uh, and you're right, it does take some training. But one future of men in this regard is you, everybody has already seen these military readiness uh, problems that men are no longer uh, inclined to go into the military. Mm. So one future of manliness is uh, more mercenaries, mm. more technology to fight our wars, because the, uh, the, the old model of male is disappearing. Mm. Their uh, attachment to their country is also disappearing. Mm. And so this is going to be a huge problem going forward. And you know, to come back to a comment that you made earlier, Mary, uh, where you noted that, you know, nuclear weapons may change the dynamic. Well, maybe, but, you know, NATO is currently fighting Russia. And that's a real war with real men on the ground. So these things are always going to exist, except it won't be the males that used to go to VMI that will be doing this. But you're going to have to hire out. You're going to have to have, a, you're going to have to build up the class of scientists that will replace the males to create technologies. Um, and then there will be more and more discontentment yeah. where males seek male friendship. They totally reject the order yeah. uh, that they've been given. Uh, in some ways, what you described earlier, that you know, you're confronted with this kind of male aggression, that's not going away. Right. Testosterone that's, is not a social construct. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> and, and I don't even want to, I, I don't even want to call it just a chemical in males. Mm. It's more than a chemical. It's an awareness that males have of themselves from very early on uh, that continues to form, and it cannot simply be beaten out of them, mm -hmm. short of lobotomizing them mm -hmm. or something, you know, uh, approximating that. And the question is where that will go. So no families to serve, no nation to serve. And so whatever that space is that they'll find um, for glory, for masculinity, for friendship, that's where it's going to pop up. Mm. A great deal of that is just video gaming, I believe, mm. at the moment. Mm. I get the sense that a certain amount of that energy goes into videos, video games. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, uh, but the question is how long that can last. Mm -hmm. uh, I yeah. don't think, you, you're right uh, that uh, it's lasted for some time and video games is really a modification of sports, you know, watching sports and a whole variety of just amusements. Uh, but I don't think that that's going to go on forever. That's not the, the permanent state of, of, of 
maybe of many men, but not of all men. And uh, you know, it's it's only a handful of men that change things. You know, it's never a mass movement. Right. So that stuff can 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 go away and and will go away at some point. So um, in the last ten minutes, I'd like to see if we have any questions. In the audience, we have microphones. I'm gonna look at Sam over here. I don't want Emma to have to run around too much. But. <laughs> Question on what is an ideal man and an ideal woman? <laughs> According to the new feminist, <clears throat> ideal woman is anything she wants to be, perhaps even including a man. And because that's radical freedom, you could choose your own adventure, no constraints whatsoever. We are embodied men and male and female. So take an average man, an average woman, say a young person, I have kids, what would you say to them? You're the ideal virtues you should be fostering as a future man or woman of virtue. Can I take this one? Yes, absolutely. On that, um, if I may, I'm going to reframe very slightly. Um, I used to find it inconceivable that scholars could come to blows as they did in centuries past over how many angels could dance on the head of a pin, or that countries could literally go to war over something that seemed abstruse to me, such as transubstantiation. Um, I no longer find that ridiculous because I've seen national politicians in my country and indeed in yours um, refusing to define what a woman is. Mm -hmm. And I would say in answer to your question about what is an ideal man or an ideal woman, that we are approaching a point of metaphysical conflict on the same level as the one where my country once upon a time went to war over the question of transubstantiation. Because I think the answer to, one answer to that question, what is an ideal man or an ideal woman, is whatever he or she wants to be. Or whoever, who, whatever they say they are, is the answer. And, the, and, and on the other side, the answer is very much more granular and probably very much more um, culturally and materially and spe specific and conditioned and would, would have to do with, with normative differences in roles and to do with our human nature and possibly also with, with reference to a broadly Christian heritage understanding that human men and women are created equal in dignity but in the image of God. And now that's, that's one paradigm for what is an ideal man or woman. And the other paradigm is just whatever they want to be. And I don't think it's possible for those two realities to, to coexist indefinitely in the same way. And, and I think it's very plausible that we'll, we'll, we'll find them increasingly sharply in conflict. I mean, indeed, you know, we, we see literal violence on the streets over the question of whether or not a male can be a woman. You know, this, this is already happening, and I think it's going to get worse. Okay. Any, another question? I have one right here. While still in its infancy, I think there's a movement it's called Project Modernity. And I was just wondering, um, what do you guys think are, are some of the uh, beneficial teachings of the ancient world? So, for example, the Hellenistic period or the ancient Roman Empire. Um, and do you think that we in 2023 can try to model our society and model our you know, gender norms what can we learn from, from our ancestors thousands of years ago? Because I think that um, we are much closer towards the natural order of, of affairs uh, back in the ancient times than we are now. How do you think we can try to implement that in modern age? Um, so I'll take that. <laughs> so what are the um, sort of uh, beneficial ideals of sort of the pre-modern period? And I would say many of them far better than the modern period. Um, and actually, uh, what I do in my book is show um, that there's a way in which going back to uh, many of those ideals, especially the view of rights as grounded in responsibilities, the view of the human person as needing virtue formation in order to reach his or her end in terms of happiness, just sort of an Aristotelian um, understanding. I mean, all of those, uh, I mean, in terms of you know the family as, um, as a precondition for the good of the state and the polis, but also as incomplete and needing the, the polis as um, for the good of the family. Um, you know, I mean, in Aristotle, there's so much to mine. Um, you know, the possibility of marriage as a virtuous friendship. Um, the uh, you know the child in Aristotle's understanding as as um, as that which brings um, the spouses together in terms of a common good and keeps them. I mean, there's just on and on and on. 
Um, I recently wrote a piece for First Things called Sex, Realist, Feminism, in which I look actually at um, Plato and Aristotle and sort of the errors of both, and then I think the advances of both in order to uh, show how they're sort of, Plato and Aristotle, especially Plato, but are both um, kind of complicit in some major errors at the, at the root of these questions about women, but then they also provide a way out. Um, and so I very much always am sort of one who goes back um, to the pre-moderns as those who I think understood, um, again, I mean, I've mentioned this many times, but just sort of the way in which human beings required formation that really needed formation and that we couldn't just, um, you know, as sort of, you know, uh, Bacon, Descartes, Hobbes, Locke, et cetera, um, thought that we sort of could, um, uh, you know, that, that those aspirations are too lofty um, and that we needed to kind of base, you know, our politics and economics on sort of a lower, um, uh, 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 lower aims um, and that were more potentially um, uh, achievable. And I think part of that is, you know, scientific revolution, technology, all of that, obviously can advance sort of man, you know, and, and, um, and sort of uh, improve man's estate, which was what their aim. But if you miss the idea that, that human beings have to be formed um, and that there's a formation toward something, right? Um, and that's something which, again, the religious wars were fought over, right? <laughs> so, um, but I think it's a really important argument to have is like, what are the kinds of human beings um, that, that we think, um, you know, sort of a, a civilization requires? And I guess the last thing I would say is, um, I'm kind of always hope springs eternal, I guess, in my world. Um, but I think that's partly because I, um, I'm raising many children. And so um, there's something about being involved in the actual formation of young men and women um, that just gives one great hope. And so the question of like, what is an ideal man or an ideal woman? I would say it's a, it's a man or woman of virtue that's in, and that virtue is instantiated in particular in each person. And those virtues look different in a man and a woman, but they also look different in each particular man or woman. But it is the necessity of virtue, of seeking you know, moral excellence, moral and intellectual excellence, um, that I think has to be recovered and reclaimed from that older tradition. Can, can I just add one thing? Uh, two small points. You know, there is a, a part of the academy that is just interested in burying the classical texts. Mm -hmm. uh, it, uh, you know, it's partly the, the kind of narrow focus on philology that ends up killing it. Because, you know, if you're interested in grammar and punctuation in Plutarch primarily, you're not interested in the stories. Uh, but there's this other tendency, which is that, uh, you know, to look at Plutarch um, and to think of oneself as some of the people he describes, uh, and then to compare oneself against them uh, as a man, as a woman sometimes too, uh, is a very uh, dangerous thing, people think. Uh, so that's one item. But on a more kind of uh, a, a smaller point, uh, there's a lot to learn in a variety of ways. But, you know, the, the West tr tradition uh, originates in Homer. And there you have uh, uh, a story of love and homecoming in the Odyssey. And what you can learn there are well, what the qualities of character are that are actually worthy of admiration and love uh, in both a woman and in a man. Uh, that's also uh, a very painful lesson for us uh, to compare ourselves against such things. Uh, but I think one that's worthy of our pursuits, that, that book is uh, still as beautiful today as, as the day that it was written. And, uh, you know, men and women can model themselves off the characters there as, as they have for, you know, a very long time. On, and only until recently was this stuff, uh, you know, buried. So I, I don't know. Do we have time for one more question? Okay, one more question. So there's a lot of talk about how, you know, the sexual revolution overtook feminism. So my question was, what is the best way to reconnect men and women with these original ideas about the sexes? I mean, it's often talked about how some academic institutions, you know, tend to teach that more modern version of sex and gender, that where we can't define what a man, man and a woman is, or that you know, there's the marketplace value. So how, what would you say is the best way to reconnect younger people with these ideas, maybe, for example, that the first wave feminists talked about? Read Mary's book. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, one, one intervention I've suggested that young women might employ to, to bring the consequentiality back into our differences, and as well as the mystery and the danger and the substance, is to begin by rejecting the original point of entry into cyborg feminism, which is the contraceptive pill. And this is something I see a lot of young women already doing, 
not all, and, not, and by no means only from conservative or religious backgrounds. I, I hear from a great many young women who were put on the pill at the age of 14 and came off it, so maybe 10 years later, and realized they'd done a complete personality flip. And actually, they, you know, I, I, I was, you know, one said, and I, quite, I, I thought I was bipolar. Mm. But then it turned out actually it was just this psychoactive substance that I'd been. What, what were they doing to me? And this is all. And, and, and this was all to the to the purpose of rendering a woman receptive to what was it, what, what is for the most part loveless and sometimes extremely degrading um, sexual access. And, and it's, I struggle to see in what way that's in women's interests. And, and given the great many other things that, to my eye, are downstream of the entry into that paradigm, it seems to me that a good place to start would be a, the a feminist movement against the pill and for rewilding sex, returning the danger to sex, returning the intimacy, and, and really the consequentiality to sex. And a great deal follows from an, an intentional reconnection of women's, op women's opting intentionally to reconnect with the fullness of our embodied nature, including our, our, our potential for reprodu our reproductive role. Mm. Well, I I think that is going to have to be the last word. Thank you, Mary, for that. Mm -hmm. Mary, Erica, Arthur, for a very lively discussion. Mm -hmm. um, and thank you all for joining us. And um, until next time, <laughs> right, would you give them a round of applause? <laughs> thank you. Thank you.